Welcome to Hit for Six. It is Friday the 4th of August. It's been a little under a week since the end of the Ashes and uh, Michael, we're here with Alex again, our, our Australian friend, to dissect what was what could only be described as a moral victory for England. So um, yeah, Michael, what were your thoughts on the last test and, and how really the last two test matches have unfolded? I'm glad you said it, Rob, because if this isn't a moral victory, then we don't know what is. I mean, firstly, I'd like to just say I've been robbed, sitting at Lords two 0 down. I very bravely made made my bet that we'd win the three we'd win three two. I thought it would galvanise the boys. I thought the incident of Alex Carey would sharpen the minds, maybe make them practice their slip catching, and yeah, I thought we'd roar back. And yeah, I think it did to an extent. But um, as you said, tests shouldn't happen in Manchester. Uh, so yeah, pretty gutted. I mean, there's all there's all sorts of things really to talk about. Again, you know, from Alex Carey being a cheat to uh, the rain that that Australia deliberately thrust upon us, um, to Pat Cummins just and Nathan Lyon just not doing the honourable thing and getting out towards the end at Edgbaston. I mean, really, if the Australians had behaved properly, then uh, maybe it would have been all different. Also, only giving us a ball, like giving us a ball that had all those overs on it in the final test, like giving us a 12-over old ball, give us a new one, come on. Yeah, disgraceful. Uh, anyway, for um, I, we can be myopic, we're not that myopic. Um, Alex, um, what were your thoughts on the last couple of tests? Well, thank you both. And I think you can only sit back and applaud at any sport, which is ultimately decided by a day's worth of weather that precludes that game from being played. I think cricket, again, shows itself to be peerless in its idiosyncrasies and its quirks, leading to seemingly completely arbitrary outcomes. So from that perspective, we can only applaud the game for doing what we know it does best. But no, I thought it was, I thought Michael is, they don't, (laughs) at betting agencies, they don't, they don't give away moral victories as we know that they don't in cricket either, but you've, you've run a very, very compelling case to get you some moral money because pretty well everything that you said from when we last spoke eventuated, I think the the flick was switched down at Lords on the last day. And really from there, England have played comfortably the better cricket. I've noted here that England actually had the better of four out of the five games. So once it's all been flushed out, I don't know how Australia's walked away at 2-2, but that, yeah, sure enough, that's what's happened. I think, yeah, I I, I would agree. Not like The moral victory stuff's nonsense, and it's stuff... Obvious, obviously. obviously. It's the sort of stuff Jonathan Agnew writes, so it's just not really our brand, uh, when we were obviously much more Johnny Lou boys. But we did probably play marginally better cricket, but only marginally, I'd say. Like it did really swing back and forth. There weren't that many sessions dominated by one team. There was only one test properly dominated by one team, which was bloody Rainchester. Um, but the rest of it really did go back and forth. I think we probably should have won that first test, but then you know what? Fair play to Pat Cummins if he just stands up and takes it at the end with his highest score in however many tests. Like that's him as captain earning the victory. You can't complain too much about that and all the stuff about the declaration is nonsense in my opinion because there wouldn't have even been a result if he hadn't declared yeah if he played it safe we could have had a draw if he just hadn't if he continued batting taking time out of the game but I'm still all right with that it doesn't seem to it hasn't annoyed me as it's much seemed to annoy everyone else so I'm not coming out of this thing with that much regret I guess the only regret I have is just I was watching the final test with my dad mum and dad and 
the final day, and it was genuinely exciting. As those as those Australian wickets fell in clusters, it was really exciting stuff. And I was thinking this would be ten times more exciting. That moment with Broad and the Bells would be ten times better if it was two all right now. And this is how we were roaring into a three two win. But again, that's nonsense because let's be if it was if it was two all at that point, would Australia have been taking risks and going for the win quite as much? I'm not sure. I think they maybe you just don't know. Would we be in that position? It, it, all of this stuff, that, that line from Stokes, which a clever media guy's clearly given him between tests, hindsight always wins, is a fair one and it's a good one. So yeah, I'm I'm sleeping easy. I'm all right. I think the other things to point out, which are, which are worth noting, Australia had to pay six test matches in six and a half weeks uh, away from home, long tour, grueling back to back, had, if not their best bowler, their key bowler, Nathan Lyon, injured towards the end of the second test and we looked a lot more comfortable batting and found it easier to bat the ball when when he wasn't playing so there are those factors to to note as well so I think there's this whole 2-2 fair result was like the kind of the England camp's line oh we think 2-2 overall was a fair result when Alex I think you're right to say probably were better in four out of the five games and those in some ways should have probably won 3-1 if one hadn't been rained off and, and we'd won at Edgbaston. But uh, nonetheless, I think... Uh, and also, Australia consistently got unlucky with the conditions. That that should be noted as well. I know when... I know because of our bias, if the conditions go in our favour, we say, oh, that's the game. But if they go against us, we moan, we moan. But I think we only really had one bad conditions go our way, which was when we had to bat in the gloom uh, at Edgebaston were 30 for two at the end of the, the like fourth day, I think, or no, third day. But mostly Australia had the bad conditions, even right to the end of the final test when ball, the ball was doing nothing shortly before it got changed for that new nut. And um, they were 130 off for none. And then the rain came down and we got to reset, come back. And we were looking so average that fourth day at the overall. So, yeah, you've got to, Australia, I'm not, they played boring cricket. But they battled through and got to all and they did they did, did the job in difficult circumstances. And that Nathan Lyon thing is massive because he's so good. You can't baz ball, you can't aggressive him for too long before he'll get you out. And obviously Tom Murphy's just not gonna have that same impact. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Michael. I think the point about Nathan Lyon has come into sharp focus since he's been missing and has really has really spoken to Nathan Lyon's evolution as a cricketer because his first four or five seasons or so he wasn't particularly well, he wasn't popular and it's not as if he's a, he's an elected official but but he was considered to be a pretty stock standard run of the mill off spinner who bowls ten k's too quickly and isn't particularly effective. In that time, since that point, and that point is probably about two thousand fourteen or fifteen or so. Since then, he has become a quietly critical part of the team and is a really significant part about most of the success that that team has had. Because if you think about think about how you structure your bowling attacks, whenever it's hot, you bowl a spinner from one end and you rotate the fast bowlers from the other end. Well, if your spinner's getting hit for more than about three and a half and over, then you have headaches and you've got to, you've got to bowl the quicks all the time. It's always hot in Australia. Most of the places you two are hot as well. England's a bit of an exception. But even with, as you said, Michael, with Basball, it may not be hot, but they're just going to come after you and try and hit you out of the attack anyway. 
But if you're picking up wickets on the way through, you keep them in check. And Lyon was doing that in the first two games and Australia really noticed his absence. I thought that first test was such a... I mean, maybe England would have got better at it because they did get better at their batting over the course of the test. They batted with controlled aggression rather than recklessness as it went on increasingly. But in that first test, it looked like every time he was about to get hit out of the attack, he'd take a wicket. Like, just as you thought Root was on top, just as you thought Brooks was on top, Best on top, he'd get them out. And those wickets at regular intervals meant the target was chaseable, which Pat Cummins then went and chased. Like, that was, it was massive. That actually, for me, had, this is, this is, that was the one biggest regret for me at the series. How Joe Root got out in the first test, in our second innings, when he had effectively taken the sting out of the situation by batting beautifully in that first and that and that fourth morning, and then he got out stumped for the first time in his career playing a horrendous shot, and it's like Joe, that is not you, that is so not you. You look in complete control here, and from then on, on we never really managed to keep going in that innings and setting a modest target. So that for me is the biggest biggest regret. Let's bring it back to well. Let's let's go to Manchester first. I can see it seems to be blowing a hurricane outside of Alex's window. I can see trees um, blowing all over the place. Uh, the weather in Manchester was appalling. And it took me back to... Because the worst thing, Alex, that you might not have appreciated in Australia was it, the weather was very bad on the Saturday everywhere in the UK. So my game got rained off on the Saturday as well. On the Sunday... Yep. I went for a walk by the river. It was it was beautiful sunshine. There were a few clouds around. No rain at all. It was basically sunny everywhere on the British Isles, from Inverness to Penzance. And the one place where it was absolutely bucketing it down, well, the two places were in Liverpool, where the Open was happening, and in Manchester, yeah. where, where the Test Factory was happening. And it did take me back to 2005, where everyone says, what a great series. Apart from the third test, which was in Manchester, which was a tedious rain-affected draw. And I, I, it's a nice city. I actually really like Manchester, apart from their football teams. Uh, got a lot of time for the place, a lot of time for the people there. But it's just the wrong side of the Pennines. It's fine to have cricket in Durham, Headingley, like, you know, take the cricket game as far north as possible. We know that the next Ashes series, they're not playing a test match north of Trent Bridge, and that's a bit of a scandal. Uh, but Old Trafford. I'm sorry, the weather there. I think the weather's too bad in Manchester to justify Test cricket. We're playing that match anywhere else in the country. It's uh, there's a result. It's Australia's Sydney, right? Sydney's where it always rains in Australia. Is that right? Sydney's the dud. Yeah, Sydney. You can't get a five day, fifteen session test in Sydney for whatever reason, and I don't know why that is necessarily. I'm not a meteorologist, but it's it's exactly the same phenomenon and. I've always been really surprised ever since Australia got bowled out for 60 at Trent Bridge. They haven't played there, have they? I don't think they got a, they didn't get a test in 19, didn't get a test this time. I would just be packing us straight back there until such time as the a child born that day was an adult. Like it, it just seems logical. Like, do... Trent Bridge heist. Yeah. I mean, surely that lends itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the last time England played Australia at Trent Bridge was a ODI where we scored about 450 in 2017. One of those <laughs> <laughs> bare pumping it into that short stand. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely a happy hunting ground for us. So I don't know why we weren't playing there. But, um, yeah, certainly as well, the, um, yeah, 
the the weather was just incredibly frustrating. And I I I kind of part jest about never play a test match in Manchester. Of course, he can play test cricket there, but at the same time, you know, you think for the UCB, the loss of revenue, it completely it took what would have been the greatest series ever and turned it into a oh, not quite as good as two thousand and five, but that was great crack. You know, it was it had a massive impact. I actually think, in some ways, it would have bested 2005 from a selfish England fans perspective because of the fact it was 2-0 down and that would have been really cool um, just as a narrative um, just, just a suggestion, I don't want to come across as like a moaning English fan only suggesting a rule change in our favour but for the World Test Championship final, they put a reserve day in because it's also being hosted in England, should there be a reserve day built into all Test matches that is automatically activated when once you've lost a certain number of overs across the first four days or across the first five days just to ensure more results i don't know whether that fits with like modern scheduling and the sheer amount of cricket they have to play maybe that's the issue but it does seem to me a shame and a bit archaic my my view is they have you have to play 90 overs every day i don't care how long it takes you this is the thing that frustrated me to me. That that's the the more. Then you don't have to mess with the scheduling. But at least you know when you're walking off the the, the day and it's been seventy five overs bowled because Josh Hazelwood's running in from the next postcode to to not even bowl that quick. Uh, you know, and then you over it, it gets slower and slower and slower and slower. That 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 for me is the bit. You could even then they could have squeezed out another forty five overs out of the first three days, and then I think you've got already a different. Um, England are shocking when it comes to um, overrates as well, but there was something that infuriated me about the fact in the fourth test where we knew it was going to be rainy. All, uh, sorry, uh, Australia just needed a draw. Play all the seamers. <laughs> no spinner. Yeah, I rate that, though. I rate that. I think that's well played. While batting to take time out of the game, just like it was the football equivalent of punting it into the stands yeah. repeatedly. I, I well, don't win. The fans still love it, Michael. It really doesn't matter how that sausage is made. But no, I'm inclined to agree. I think your point, Rob, about number of overs bowled in a day is really important because even if, if cricket is, is increasingly speaking the language of commerce and saying, well, we say we can't afford a reserve day because we're going to pack this, you know, the next game's in three days and you, you're always headbutting into the next one and the next one and the next one, then. I think there's a really open question as to whether an 83 or 84 over day is actually representing the the ticket that people bought to get in because you're always leaving, like you're always using an extra half hour and you're never getting to the full allocation of overs. And at what point do you kind of go, well, actually, this isn't, this isn't, you know, do, are we getting a, you know, an 8% discount on the ticket because we didn't get the 100% of the entertainment that we we're up for? I, I feel like that's a very open, very yeah. open question. Well, not, a, not a new one, but yeah. It's, it's exactly the same that with, uh, they're in a similar discussion at the moment with, with rugby because of how long scrums take to reset and that kind of thing. You end up with a ball in play for about 22 minutes. Um, at least with cricket, you've got a, a decent, a decent day's worth of entertainment. But you, I, I think there is, uh, something to be said for both that people pay to watch, watch these people play sport not to not to stand around or take their time between doing the things that they're, they're supposed to be doing um, and but also it makes for a less enjoyable day because those like those last sessions i love cricket but they drag that last you know when you're looking at like a two hour 45 when it's been a bit of rain earlier in the day last session i think that drags for everyone it must drag for the players imagine if you're 
doesn't mean Kawaja just standing there, you know, in the field, like you're not going to bowl. He's there two hours, 45 minutes. It's like, oh, but Kawaja is fine because he's managed to convince the ICC to completely change the overrates rules so that he no longer gets fined as much. Like Uzi Kawaja is one of the best negotiators on the planet. That was our, that was that was incredible. Like between tests, making an appeal to the ICC to change the overrates rules just before Australia played twelve seamers in a team. Um, so that that was funny. Also, just I think we should move on from this because I want to talk about something that I'm surprised Rob hasn't shoved in my face yet. But... Don't worry, that is that that is there. That's that's my big finish. So we don't <laughs> have to go there yet. Um, but no, wherever it's the finish, I can't end on that. But um, that could be the next bit. But just um, did you guys see the overrates penalties in terms of ICC World Test Championship points? Oh, England... they played half the test for free. Yeah, England England got no points from this. Australia <laughs> got a few more, but both teams have been absolutely slammed. For... Both teams have been slammed in terms of points, but Australia have been slammed less because of how fast England bat. It meant England completed their innings quicker, and somehow Australia avoided like because of the new rules. They don't quite understand it despite the fact they were both probably just as slowly as each other. And so England have come out of this this series looking like they've drawn two games. That, it's outrageous. But I don't think World Test Championship point deductions or whatever are particularly strong penalty. Like, run penalties would speak so much more. If you said, right, for if you don't get, if you, for every one over you fall behind, whatever that rate is, or is it minus one, minus two, minus three, that's 20 penalty runs. It's why they're desperate in limited over cricket to avoid it. Like they all sprint around like mad things because there are run penalties, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, and you yeah, get it in no. cricket as well. And you see it on a South, you know, you get it, it takes a bit long, oh, you yeah, know, and suddenly just on comes whoever just to fire down a few, just to get you know, get back on the overrate and speed things up again. And obviously you want to hope that you don't want to get to a point where you've just got Joe Root bowling darts from one end and then you're chucking the ball to Harry Brook just to bowl to Mido just to get the overrate back up. But at the same time, I think you don't have to have a mother's meeting um, between... That's England's main issue, the amount of pointing and chatting and setting of creative fields. It takes forever. That's like that's what mainly seems to be slowing us down, plus the fact that we often don't have a spinner. Um, but yeah. Two things. Let's, um, let's just move on. Let's get it over and done with. I always secretly believed that Zach Crawley had it in him. Um, I always wanted him to have it in him. And I feel like if I was given a thousand chances in Test cricket, I might eventually come good too. So it's really good that him having had those thousand chances, all these other openers having had four, it's really good that he has used them now. And he had an amazing series. So fair all, play. Yeah. All I can say, you might have believed or secretly thought, I knew, I knew he had it in him. He's, he's a, I think he's now my favourite ever cricketer. Shut up. I think it used to be Mohammed Hafiz. It is now Zach Crawley. It isn't true. You're just, you're being silly. You can say he's your favourite current player in the team. You can't say he's your favourite cricketer. Otherwise, you're a liar. I think, fine. It's it's between Mohammed Hafiz, Malcolm Marshall, and Zach Crawley. They're probably my three favourite ever cricketers. Uh, Alex looks horrified. I tell you why. It's the way he stands there, second slip, collar up having averaged 11 against New Zealand across six test matches, uh, like like he is the best player in the world. And then occasionally, normally against a tired, hotel-bound Pakistan team, he 
Blaze is an amazing hundred. And then he did it in the ashes and it was incredible. And it wasn't only that he had this one innings, but actually he hit a load of fifties. He looked in great touch consistently and he scored what? 500 runs at a strike rate of 90. I've, I mean, I've seen so many stats that have been upsetting me, but I have to tell them. Most runs by an English batter in an Ashes series since before 2005. Yeah. Uh, at home, at home. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Obviously, Cook away would have smashed that, but at home, most runs. It's, it's, I think it was, I can't remember who it was. I thought, yeah. And it was for like an opener, it was like the most runs as an opening batsman in an Ashes series since like. I can't remember. It was like it was like Len Hutton or something. <laughs> just and an unbelievable strike rate, constantly setting the tone. Um, yeah, I, I think Ben Duckett's gotten away with it. I think Ben Duckett's a good player, but I think he will get found out over time. Uh, the way he plays, in my opinion. Uh, but Zach Crawley did look really good, <laughs> man for the big occasion. Also, seriously good slipper. I mean, he took everything, and that's a big deal. That's a really he- big. Yeah, I mean, he dropped one right, right at the end, the broad one, which was like a near impossible yeah, shot. In the way he did, it would have been said to drop short. So I actually really rated that he went forward to go for yeah. it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think as well, he's, I mean, he's always been, you could always tell he, he can catch well because he's always taken some good catches, but he used to drop some randomly. Um, but I suppose that's kind of his style, right? Alex, you looked horrified when I said he was. I, I take it back. Muhammad Hafiz is my favourite cricketer of all time, but after Muhammad Hafiz, it is Zach Crawley. Um, you look horrified at both those those shouts. I am incredibly curious about them. I'd love to hear you talk more to them, except for the fact that I think there are other things that may be further in scope which we could pursue now. But I think I think the combination of Duckett and Crawley, if it is. If, if, if that partnership is conducted in the right way, I feel like this could be quite a solid but aggressive opening partnership for England. And you can be both at the same time because the in Australia, we view Langer and Hayden as platinum standard and they were both of those things. And so I view this as a partnership at the top of the order, which could be a really significant part of England's future setup. And I'm... I'm looking mainly at 18 months' time and them coming out here and thinking, well, how much of this team is going to be good enough to come out and compete and do well? And I think these two could well be a part of that. I think Crawley in particular can be benefited because he's been here before. He had a horrible time, but he's been here before. And I think sometimes you need to go on one tour to get yourself prepared for the next one. And I think Duckett is, I think even in the last game, he's he's started to show that there are some real benefits to the way he approaches his batting. It's highly unconventional for, a, for an opener. He's left something like five balls in his life, but that's fine. He's finding a way. And there'll be challenges associated with that. But I think at the Oval, you saw how this how this approach to playing cricket more broadly across the team manifested through Duckett, and he gets away to 30 or 40 each time. Doesn't go on and make a big number, which would be frustrating for him, and he's got room to develop that. but. Australia's first hour in both innings at the Oval were immediately under the hammer because both openers decided they were going to go at fives. And that sort of approach is going to stack up. And I think that aggressive approach in Australia is going to work much better than the sort of stuff that's turned out beforehand. I think this this game plan at large, while it's being concentrated on the two openers here, I think this game plan at large maximizes what England have a hell of a lot better than what they've had in the past. We've got lots of, lots of really good aggressive players. 
And I think they're getting a bit of a license to play in a really aggressive way, which is entertaining, but I think he's going to be effective. I completely agree. And I think the main thing I've taken away from this series is just confirmation that if you put the pressure back on, you're much more likely to produce mistakes from the other side than if you just, whereas if you hang around and you play that old defensive style, which we did for years under roots, just trying to cling on, you're going to get a good ball eventually. That's just how cricket works, right? So, and I, so I'm actually really interested to see what happens when we go to India because it could work. Like it could work taking this aggressive style to India, putting the pressure back on them because taking on those pitches, you're off, there's going to be a ball with your name on it. But if you can get 40, 50 before that ball comes, then you're going to put the pressure right back on them and give yourselves a chance. So I think, oh God, yeah, the moral victory stuff's nonsense, but I think it has proven this alternative approach to test cricket has merit and has has longevity and and has been done against almost the best bowling attack in the world. I say almost because Nathan Lyon wasn't part of it. Um, so it's not fully, fully proven. Uh, but doing it against Pat Cummins, Hazelwood, um, Mitch Stark, like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But so used to seeing teams come out to Australia with a plan and then that gets disrupted when they play in Brisbane and the track is off the trails and it never gets back. And I think one thing that England can take a lot apart from is that the train was seriously threatened from being derailed at 2-0 down, but they did show enough faith in themselves and showed enough confidence that even though they weren't winning and there were comments about we feel like we're 2-0 up and whatnot, there's always a certain amount of that you got to do to keep the air in your own camp's tyres, if a camp can have tyres. But if if they can bring themselves around from that, then I think they've they've got themselves on the right path mentally to be able to succeed elsewhere. A test in India will be great for that. Yeah, it should be good. Can we just talk a bit? Oh, sorry, Rob, are you about to come in? Yeah, I was just going to mention the the other thing that changed the series, right? We, we spoke briefly about the, the fifth day at Lords and you felt that the dynamic almost shifted after the the whole the whole stumping um, Bairstow thing. But the, the other, the main thing that really changed the series was England picking a better team and Wood and Wokes completely changed the series. And I remember sitting on day one at Lords next to a friend who turned to me and we saw Chris Wokes sitting on the drinks cooler with his bib on. Just saying, why, why is Chris Wokes not playing today? He he plays so well at Lords. Like, why why is he not playing? I thought, oh yeah, maybe they think he's a bit past it in Test cricket. Or we sort of said, yeah, you have the media aren't really talking about him. And yeah, and then he comes in and he takes what, nineteen wickets at seventeen eighteen, and what a joy. fantastic. And so well, the other thing for me around the, the what about and the what ifs, you just wonder if Wokes had played every Test or certainly four out of five Tests, if Wood had been fit earlier. You know, we speak about Nathan Lyon getting injured, but Mark Wood not being available for the first couple of tests. It did feel that England settled on a much happier and better balanced uh, team, bowling attack in the second half of the series. Uh, you know, I certainly think picking Robinson was a good call, given his form coming in, into it over the last couple of years. He didn't play well. We haven't, we've been respectful and not talking about Jimmy too much, but... I'm not going to be respectful, I'm happy to go in on that. because I'm Okay, sure. well, we can go on that in a second, but let's just acknowledge Wokes and Woods were fantastic, and Chris Wokes, it really feels like he's he's come of age at 34. Uh, yeah, fair play to him. something that he's deserved his whole career. He's had to play in the shadow of Broad and Anderson. He's very, very unlucky to have to, to have grown up in that era, you know. And yeah, I think I don't think anyone was unhappy for it. I think everyone was delighted for him. And that was I mean, really, 
And I thought yeah. at the end he wasn't going to get given the player of the series because all the attention was on Broad for the last couple of wickets. And I thought it might go to Mark Wood. I thought it might go to Pat Cummins. But I was really pleased that that Woke's, that Woke's got it. Um, yeah. And yeah. also, it's worth saying he's he's had a he's talk about living in their shadow. I mean, he has played in two victorious World Cup victories. No, just in tests, I mean. Just yeah, tests. yeah. But yeah, I, but I feel like he's had a he's had a glittering limited Davis career with a, a sprinkling of good test matches. He had a brilliant series against India a couple of years ago and he had that test match at Lords where he took a five and scored a hundred. So yeah, which is class. So but I, I agree, Michael. I felt this was his sort of crowning moment in Test cricket and you feel he's now had some really memorable yeah. England performances in all three formats to go with what I mean he's a he's a genuinely top class bowling all rounder and I think he, he showed that, particularly at Headingley as well, when he knocked off the runs at the end. Too. I, mean, I was so frustrated. When Bairstow got himself out, I thought, right, that's probably it. And then they just set about it. Ah, oh, brilliant. I was really, really pleased. Um, just before we go in on Jimmy Anderson, our greatest all-time bowler, um, but a uh, little bit shot now. Um, just the thing about Moeen going up to three was also an unexpected big impact thing. Like, fair play, particularly in... The, the called off fourth test, but where he where he got his fifty, it really worked, and really respect to Moeen Ali for doing it, and I'm pleased that he had a bit of a nice ending as well. Yeah, very much so. Well, he had that lovely. <clears throat> I feel he should have called it a day when he took a hat trick to win the test match at the Oval against South Africa about six years ago, which is such a nice way. Imagine leaving on that note. Uh, he's obviously uh, another player. He's probably almost his best moments for England have come in general in limited overs cricket. And so it was really nice for him to have this final series, get past 3,000 test runs and 200 test wickets. The names on that list, he's probably the worst cricketer on that list. Which, And he's a very good cricketer, so it gives you an idea of, you know, we're talking not many more than Sobers, Callis, Shane Warne, um, Stuart Broad. Uh, there aren't there aren't capital death, like there aren't many people on that list. So fair play to him on, on that front. But nice, for, I think, the way that, He's kind of bowed out a little bit more quietly than Broad, uh, but his reintroduction to the team, both with his batting and I thought, apart from obviously the whole finger thing in the first test, but on the whole, he bowled pretty, he bowled tidily enough that we kind of got, he he plugged the gap. I don't think we were expecting him to win his test matches, but he he did enough and so, so fair play to well, He bowled well on that final day, considering he had a groin injury, but he bowled well and... Yeah, that his getting Marsha, and we'll get to Bairstow's catch because it's another thing for me to eat humble pie over. Um, although it's slightly more nuanced than that. Um, but yeah, no, I think we're all pleased for that. Before we go to that, Alex, what were the views from from across the pond on England's various retirements and good guys, etc.? Where do they all sit? Had the the, the order of of people who are retiring and. Would we, would the Australian cricket team go and have a drink with the English cricket team when a whole bunch of the English cricket team are retiring and other related matters? I think, I think Moen Ali is, is regarded with a fairly moderate opinion because he hasn't done too much to annoy or attract the admiration of the public. I think, I think he's had a great series because he's been basically unnoticed. He's been brought in off off a couple of weeks and a text from Stokes saying, Leach is injured, do you want to play? And he's held up the off-spinning duties as far as he could, as far as his body could allow him. And I think him going up and batting at three and it not being a disaster is really significant as well because broadly speaking, 
Number three is a position that you like to change pretty infrequently. And England were forced into it and they didn't have anyone who was who was a natural fit for it. So Moen appears to have gone up and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And I think he's protected some of the other members in that team who could have done it if they had had to, but didn't want to, seemingly. And I think he acquitted himself really well and it was also not really inclined to be doing it beyond this series anyway. So I think I think he's he's planted a tree, knowing that he's never going to experience the shade from it. Really, like he's he's been on a bit of a hiding to nothing, and he's just you know made a couple of fifties. Didn't do anything rogue to suggest that the English batting lineup was frail, and the whole thing carried on. I thought it was a really in, in an understated way. I thought it was a really valuable performance because if your number three goes missing then you're in real trouble and that didn't happen and it could easily have. So no, I think, I think from that perspective, Moeen has my personal admiration. Broad is a different kettle. And I think now that it's finished, I think Australians really like Stuart Broad. I think, I think now that, now that this is over, this is, you know, the stumps on Broad's career have been, drawn from the ground and we are now metaphorically having a beer with Stuart Broad and really enjoying it. Like I think I think he is one of those people who is just there for the the pantomime and has done a hell of a good job of it. And now that it's all said and done, I think we could acknowledge that he's been a hell of a player, seems mm. to be a really nice guy. And so by all means, come without a visa. We will let you in. I won't say the nice guy thing, but there's something about David Warner and the way he's reacted to every dismissal this series that's made me warm to him. Like every single time he's got out for a straight in 20, just that 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 grin. I don't yeah, know. My, it's, it's that classic, now he's not any good, I like him. My dad really likes David Warner now. He used to hate him. He's like, uh, he's like, yeah, I love David Warner. We, we always six off for 10. <laughs> it's like, yeah. suddenly he's harmless and sort of this quite fun, pugnacious Aussie. You can kind of admire him plundering hundreds at home against Sri Lanka. Then he comes to England and doesn't get any runs. And my dad's like, yeah, yeah, Warner, good player. Yeah, I like him. Uh, when when he was scoring lots of runs, he was like, oh, that pugnacious, nasty Australian. Uh, it's a completely different sort of view to him. Uh, the other thing with Stuart Broad I was reflecting on, um, Michael and I know someone who got, um, well, as to you, Alex, we're not going to name him, but he got hit for six sixes in an over. And I was playing in, in a game where he got hit for six sixes in an over. And and that person never really bowled again. And I think for... Um... No, no, Nish bowls, um, I'm naming him, Nish bowls, uh, Nish bowls little dibbly dobblers now. I, I certainly weren't going to name him. Okay. But he, he, never, he never bowled um, off spin again. I think for Stuart Broad, age 21, to be hit for six sixes uh, in a World Cup, all right by an all-time great player. And the bat- it wasn't really bad bowling. It was amazing batting. Um, to then kind of put that behind you and go on to have a 600 test wickets, you know, not knocking 200 ODI wickets, captain England in T20s, full-on glittering career is a uh, testament to... Testament, testament to his character and I think I think really impressive because I think that's not as easy to come back from as people might think and it sort of fades into distant memory but every Indian social media crick info following agitator loves to bring it up whenever Stuart Broad does anything um, but I think he's yeah he's, he's had a fantastic career and he's now set to be on Sky Sports for the next 40 years he's already started he was on 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 Tuesday he was he was there yeah, he was, to, wasn't he? he was like yeah. hey guys I'm finishing you should be the first to know 
Athers, do they make these bigger? Can I can, can I come in? So yeah, he's he's been lining that I up. Feel like I kind of doing my flu, what it's worth. He seems like an articulate guy, aesthetically right. pleasing enough. He'll get a go. He's very suited to it, isn't he? Uh, I don't think as many people mentally stronger than Stuart Broad in terms of just like just keeps on plugging away, keeps on finding a way to reinvent himself, add new skills, make himself relevant, make the absolute most of his talent. Like that's those are the sportsmen you I think you really respect the people who who stretch it. Rob's apart Rob's apart from his batting, that is a talent wasted. No, no, but it is wasted. But even that, the mental stuff comes in because he literally had his nose blown up by Varun Aaron. What's what? What a funny bowler to have your entire batting career destroyed by. But um, that's the only thing Varun Aaron will ever be remembered for, which we'll come on to in a bit. That line, but the fact that he had nightmares and he had to see a therapist about it because he kept seeing cricket balls hitting him whenever he shut his eyes. And you know what? He still comes out to bat. And after a couple of years of dodging it, he now gets in line and stuff. And he, he he's not the same batter, but he still gives it his absolute best. So yeah, I think no. that yeah, that's fair. I was I was guessing with the batting. Call. Now you have to say, well, yeah, yeah, it's had therapy about it. You made me look like a bad bloke, Michael. I was always, <laughs> always. Rob's a terrible Rob, bloke. Yeah, but Rob's a lovely guy. Can we substitute Rob out of this podcast and get Stuart brought in? Is that okay? Can we arrange that? How, this is the wonder of Stuart Broad because I don't think he probably is that good a guy. But like we we're talking at length about how good a guy he is. Like this is he's he's. he's, he's... I think he is, you, Michael. You're just one of those people who's scarred from the KP Genius Twitter account that was ten years, eleven years ago. So you know there was this Twitter account taking the mick out of Kevin Peterson, Alex. He had lots of funny tweets around. You know, people who say Test cricket's the pinnacle. They haven't you know slapped Indian medium pacers around at a one four seven strike rate in a packed IPL stadium, you know, stuff like that, as if that's what KP was saying in the dressing room. And it was allegedly being run by Stuart Broad's best mate, I think it was. Um, and there was this, yeah, yeah, yeah this whole thing. Yeah, like, lines. yeah, A, those tweets were funny. B, uh, it was 11 years ago. Uh, and people are allowed to mature and um, develop as individuals. I mean, he's, I, I, I think Stuart Broad comes across so, so well. He's, I think he's friendly. I think he's... Uh, yeah, funny, very competitive, wanting them to win. But I think we saw on the the, the last day of the Ashes uh, test at Lords that sort of he was both angry but also pantomime angry, which I think was exactly the the tone to to strike. And I think he played played that character perfectly. Um, and you know, and then he didn't. It, it would have been weird if he kept bringing that up later on in the series. He didn't. He gave it a big one on that day, and then. Left it alone after that. Like, yeah, so I really like him and I cannot wait for him to be on Sky Sports for the next 40 years because that is definitely what's going to happen. He has, he has, sorry, Michael, I'm cutting straight across you. He has introduced a, a, a trick that is going to be that popular across the cricketing world for no good reason, simply because it worked and it got someone out later. I refer to twice. the change. It worked twice. Player. It worked twice. It will be done millions upon millions of times. No one has ever thought, I've never heard of anyone doing it before, but here he is going off and doing it. And now it's just become an additional, like it, it, he has acquired mystique where I, none of I would never do that though. I would never switch. I imagine doing that on Saturday coming. I switched the bales. People would look at me like, oh, what a. No, but this is the thing. And this is very Stuart Broad. He has not just introduced a new trick. He has started thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of mini conflicts 
for the next few years of people who try to do this trick and then causes an argument between the batter and you know like this is going to cause so many small little rumbles and I think Stuart Ball would be delighted with that. And so many, so many jugs ball. I think if you do that on a Saturday, switch the bales and don't get a wicket next ball, that's an automatic jug. So he's costing people who do that and it doesn't work for them in the same way. A lot of a lot of money as well. But it was, one, it was a serious moment, wasn't it? When he particularly did it the second time and you think, oh yeah, yeah. and he was only doing it because he knew it was going to be his last ball because he was about to get taken off. I mean, poor Todd Murphy. Mm. <laughs> Someone's um, got to stand there. I feel like Todd is going to, Todd's a really natural kind of innocent bystander slash victim sort of person. Like he's, you know, got the glasses on and he looks a little bit, looks a little bit scared and a little bit fretful all the time. And then yeah. something like this happens to him and it just atones why he looks so fretful. But I should mention as well, on behalf of those uh, who are in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly Australia, there is a bit of a feeling at the end of the series that this group hasn't quite fulfilled what it's set out to do twice now like it's it's gone two one up and gone to the oval twice and it's failed to live out its expectations and its aspirations for itself which I think was forgivable the first time I think they were a bit punch drunk by the time they got to the oval and fair enough but I think this time they're feeling more than a little short change by themselves on this occasion, which I think has has led to this kind of thesis of the tour, including the World Test Championship final, being somehow less than sort of the sum of its parts, really. Like they've, they've won the World Test Championship. That was great. And they've retained the Ashes. That was great. Discreetly, the job's been done, but it feels a bit like less than that. So those, those celebrations were measured, I would say. When they when they held the uh, ashes aloft, I think they knew. Uh, I felt for Pat Cummins having done six tests in such a grueling time. I really felt for him to be honest. But I think you, I think you're right, Alex. When you look down the Australian team, and you look at say the batting averages for each individual, and you look at the bowlers, and you look at the bowling averages, the number of wickets taken, you're looking at an unbelievable team. And you look down the England lineup at the start of the series, and you don't think it's going to be a fair fight, and that somehow it's Combinated tool draw, England had arguably the better of it. I think you would be slightly disappointed as an Australian fan, as Pat Cummins. You'd feel like you, it's a serious, like it's a, it's a, it's an all time team, and they're not going to come back most of them. So I think there's going to be a fair, I think you're right. There will be a fair bit of disappointment. Yeah, it's become a bit of the white whale in the last twenty years or so. Obviously, two thousand one, Australia won four one, I think, and and won really well. But since then, have been in some have basically been in each series, with the exception of 2013. Australia weren't really in the hunt there. But otherwise have been really competitive but haven't won one. And I think it's it's reached a point where they're now, I think they'd, they've really geared themselves up for this to be the one. They've been a bit unlucky. I think they've had a horrible schedule this year because they've had to go to India first. And Pat Cummins in particular has had a really difficult time because his mother was terminally ill and he had to go back and then go to England to play India again and then play England. So it's been a really full book, but it just doesn't quite feel as if this group's lived out its its potential and its promise. Michael, you have your hand up. You have to discover this feature. How exciting. And... It's not primary school, Michael. You can, you can just like look as if you're keen. Michael Kinston has raised his hand on Zoom. What is this? I don't think it's primary school. This is just a well-run Teams or Zoom meeting, Rob. You know, we've all been in them during uh, this 
last few years. No, just to say, actually, 2013 is an interesting one, Alex, because you say that's the one you weren't in. Well, actually, I've seen a good example of the kind of this. It's a what about kind of thing, really. But England were 2-0 up, and there's good footage of the England players celebrating much more enthusiastically than the Australian players celebrated in this series when England didn't have to bat anymore and they were 30 for three and Ryan Harris was on one and potentially going to make the series 2-1 and keep Australia in it. And so you can see all the England players jumping about on the balcony because they've retained the ashes because it's raining, I believe, in Manchester. So just a funny one. You were in the, you potentially were in that series, but Manchester give up and take up away. So, yeah, just wanted to flag that. Long, long live I, the day. I do remember that. Yeah, I remember this was about... This is about one in the morning in Australia when this was all happening, and and it looked like if we had about another hour and a half, we could have just taken all the hits and won the game, and then we'd be right back into it. But but there it is. One question I did want to ask each of you. Now I'm hosting. Um, one thing I wanted to ask each of you is: Does baseball render James Anderson structurally unemployed? Do, does baseball mean that Anderson no longer has a job? They want wickets to be flat, and where that advantages Crawley at all, it detracts from Anderson, and he doesn't have a place. It's not Basball's fault. Basball has kept James Anderson in the team for four out of five tests, like the Basball ethos, giving players a chance, not chopping and changing, in a nice way, picking your mates and you know picking the guys you trust. As meant, Anderson's played more tests than he should have this series. I mean, I think if we hadn't won that test at the overall. There would have, there should have been serious questions about the fact that we basically had two bowlers, two and a half bowlers. I'm sorry to call Stuart Broad half bowler, but he kind of oh. went quiet for a while and then he turned up again. But oh, harsh, harsh. Not fine. Three bowlers then. Three bowlers. Like because and Wood was struggling. You know what I mean? It just looked like an old. It looked like the oldest attack of all time for a while at the Oval, particularly on that fourth day when it when we got saved by the rain and got to go off and recharge. Wokes was carrying us on his bummy back for a lot of the test. And that's partly because we picked Anderson and he just didn't look at it. I didn't mind him being picked for Old Trafford because it's his home pitch and I think it made a lot of sense for people, but he shouldn't have been picked for the Oval. And it's hard to, it's a certain je ne sais quoi or lack of it, but he's not bowling any slower. However, when he does pitch it up, it's floaty. And when he pitches it short, it's tight. There's no chance of it getting wickets, like just back of a length. It just doesn't look like it's clicking. And sometimes you just know it just doesn't look it right. It just doesn't look right. Hopefully he'll prove me wrong, but it just, it feels like it's done. He, he did beat the bat quite a few times over the series without taking wickets. There's a few on that morning. I was there on day two. So watched Marnus and Kawaja adore it for a very, very tedious opening session. And Jimmy beat the bat four or five but, times. But there's something about beating the bat where when they say if that had been a bit fuller, it might have taken the edge. And I think Anderson got accused of this in the last Away Ashes series. Kind of, you got, I say get accused. I think Root kind of insinuated, like, oh, they're not bowling the lengths we want to bowl. They're not bowling full enough to take those wickets. And I think Anderson sometimes does that. I think he bowls dry uh, and he bowls that slightly back of a length where you do beat the bat, but you're less likely to take the edge. And did you guys know, I, maybe I'm making it up, but I thought whenever he pitched full, it just seemed to float out and he got and he got pumped. It, it would go, yeah. it would go full. As, as someone who spends a lifetime bowling flaty half volleys that get pumped, I I want to make sure that that that's a legitimate delivery that you can bowl, Michael, and there's always a chance it gets a wicket. But uh, I, I thought well, you, well, you always bowled a length that was 
just fast enough to be the length that it was and and your your ability to straddle that fine line was was your strength but that, that ability think... has now gone and it's very depressing but i appreciate that you you saw probably saw the best of me alex 2016 probably 2016 through 19 were my were my great years now it's all over that's all right it comes for us all eventually i, I think I think that that criticism of Anderson that you just made, Michael, has been pretty well the criticism that the Australian cricket watching public has had of him whenever he's come out here. He's bowled pretty lengths, which beat the bat and don't take wickets. And and by and large, his record in Australia, I think, is relatively, relatively weak. He's got a great record across the board. No questions about that. But if there's a chink in his armour, it's out here. I gather he has a real personal despisal for going for runs. So I think it's almost a case of he would rather be a little bit tidier than risk it and take a few more wickets on the way through. And and I think I, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering a little bit whether whether that can peacefully coexist with how the team wants wants to play. And I don't know. We'll just have to see how that flushes out. The other thing is when you ask that question about a 41-year-old and say, well, is this the end? you're always going to be right eventually. Like we, you know, I don't know if you, we don't all get out, none of us get out alive. You know, this kind of, if you keep preempting the end, the end will come eventually and you'll be right. But I just wondered whether with him in the team that it was just slightly holding some of England's forward-looking strategizing back a little bit because you're probably not going to take like he's not going to come out here for example at 42 pushing 43 is he he i think he is deluded and bless him but he, he's fully on mate i think he's convinced that he's going to be holding the ashes um aloft at the scg with the the whole stallman family going by the way alex to oh. be the last two tests we've got um well oh. i mean the whole stallman family i mean all 25 of us where was mine but this oh no, Michael, you're very welcome to come along. We, I've heard of it. This, this plan was hatched on Saturday. It transpires up. So my cousin lives in Sydney at the moment, and his last winter there is going to be the ashes down under. And I've convinced his mum, who doesn't like cricket, that we all need to go, that they shouldn't go next winter, but they should go the winter after. And we should all go, because we have a big Boxing Day thing as a family. We go on this long walk and stuff. We should all go, stay in Sydney, have Christmas in Sydney, Boxing Day test MCU clean. And for those of us who want to stay on stay for Sydney as well, I've um I think we it's it was gathering momentum at my cousin's wedding on Saturday. So we're going to be there, and James Anderson is going to be there, and he's not going to be in the TMS commentary box. He's going to be there, having taken test um, match figures of twelve for one hundred and ten to to win the Ashes three two in the SCG, uh, the ultimate basketball moment. Um, yeah, he that that's where his head's at. That's where my head's at. Um, yeah. Maybe wishful thinking. I don't, I'm intoxicated I don't, by the positivity. I don't think you drop someone based on age, right? You, you you pick someone based on the performances, and frankly, he shouldn't have been picked for that final test based on his performances in series. I think it's as straightforward as that. Josh Tong really showed something in that second test, and I think the most important question is, who would the Australians well be facing? I'd be surprised if they weren't saying James Anderson by that final test. Um, so that was really frustrating for me. It'd be really interesting to see how they move forwards because I agree with you, Rob. <laughs> I think he's pretty deluded. I think he's pretty set. I'm not going out this way. He clearly doesn't want to retire looking past it. Like he, if maybe he's thinking I want to go out on top, maybe he's thinking I'll never ever go out at all and I'm going to play till I'm 100. But it'll be a really interesting test of 
the quite weird and I don't think always particularly fair selection uh, process, which just seems to be Baz and Ben and Rob, not you, Rob Key, um, just making decisions. It'll be really interesting to see what they do with Anderson for the away tour of India next summer. Get get Sam Billings back in. Get the, the get the Kent Brigade back together. Uh, there were accusations, Alex, if you're not aware, that Rob Keith just picks his uh, the kids of his mates. So he's he's good mates with Crawley's dad, good mates with Billings' dad. Um and so because yeah, loves loves to ship him in. But uh I think uh, that being said, it is worth saying that Rob Key has done an incredible job since taking over uh England cricket. The Brendan McCullum um, ben Stokes sort of appointment thing was a master stroke. Was he in charge as well of the decision to bring in Matthew Mott for limited overs cricket? Mm, I think he might. Sure. Yeah, I mean, can hardly say that's gone badly with us winning the 2020 World Cup last year. So, yeah. um, joking aside, Rob Key's actually done an amazing job since taking over as uh, head of English cricket, which I don't think many people were expecting, but credit where credit's due. I also wonder with the Anson thing if. Like Broad's retirement has sort of thrown, well, has kind of brought that to light in almost a, a weirder way. It's like, oh, maybe you should have done that like two two years ago, Jimmy. Do you know what I mean? It, like no one really saw that coming. All the focus was on on Anderson. Is he going to retire? Is this going to be his last series? And then no one was talking about that with Broad, although he was at a similar, yeah, he's a couple of years younger, but a similar age and stage. And then Broad really does announce, retires in the perfect way on top, has sort of done it right. And now Jimmy's in this weird position of he either has to batten down and he needs a good year to justify staying, staying on, or if he has another bad year and then he goes out with a whimper, it's like, oh, you, you should have done what Cook and Broad did. Because Cook definitely wasn't, his place wasn't in jeopardy in the team. No. And he scored 100 in his last test, won the test, got to be the you know highest test run scorer, left-handed test run scorer, Pip Sangakara to it, perfect finish. See you later. Um, Broad's done something similar. Got to 600 wickets. Taken last, last ball batted six. Last ball bowled wicket. Yeah, the whole change the bales. Draw the ashes. He's married a, a pop star. She's there with his baby. Um, great, great photos of the family. You know, got to bat with Jimmy in his last one. He had that like perfect finale as if he'd, he'd scripted it himself. And now it's almost like, well, Jimmy, pre- pressure on to do the same because you don't want to go out with a whimper like, you know, a few other top English players, maybe a Strauss, Trot. What happened with Bell's last game? I don't really know what happened there. Swan's the saddest ending of all. Swan. Oh, that was a tragic one, yeah. Bell's last game, he got brought back in. I'm pretty sure he got brought back in in 2015 Ashes, um, having been out of the team for a while. And he hit a streaky 50 with a few nice cover drives to help us win one of the tests. That's my memory of it, I think. So Bell kind of went out in a fitting way. But Anderson, he's like, he's been through all the eras. I remember, I remember him playing against Zimbabwe in two thousand and three. That is so long ago. I was seven. Like he needs, uh, he needs a proper finish, and you just wonder whether his moment's gone. Yeah, potentially. It, it's great that I know that there's space in each of our brains for the red-tipped hair era of James Anderson, <laughs> which is now it is a solid twenty years ago. And he's he's become one of these understatedly eternal figures who's probably a little bit similar to someone like Steve War, I suppose. Steve War hung on for too long too. Him and Matthew Hayden are probably the two I can think of in a, in a broadly similar position where they 
they decided their approach to their career was that they were going to go until they were effectively cut down or pushed out. And it's a way you can do it. And by all means, enjoy what's there while he's around. But the Alistair Cook, in my mind, Shane Warne is the one who retired almost when he seemed like his his strongest. He was bowling really well when he finished up. And that's always the one that leaves the more satisfying taste in the viewers. Warne's retirement amongst the other Australian legends, that's the most satisfying collection of retirements ever. Like, we lost the Ashes unexpectedly. Right, we're going to pump you 5-0 at home. Like, completely do away with you. And now we're retiring. Happy days. That's like it was. It was Warren McGraw, uh, hate Justin Langer. Langer, like... Langer finished up. Damien Martin retired two games in, so <laughs> that was the one that that really caught everyone by surprise, including the team itself. It played in Brisbane and Adelaide, and was like, no, no, I've seriously had enough, and I'm leaving, and I'm leaving now, and so. Then all the others, I think, piled in. Really, that team only hung around because they lost in 05. If they'd won, they probably would have done the farewell tour that summer and then been like, hey, guys, we're really happy to leave. But no, that, that was seriously amped up. And that was Anderson's first test match tour out here. He came in 02, 03 for one days, but he came out for the test match and test matches in 06, 07. And We've had a hell of a time getting rid of him since, and it seems maybe we're going to have to put up with him again. But no, oh, no, he won't. Get there. He won't. He yeah. can't get there. He just can't. Um, well, the worst he maybe he about. will. What if he bowls brilliantly? No, what if he, he just can't. starts taking polls again? No, I hope he does, but he can't. I just, <laughs> I'll be stunned. Um, also, just, just to be just to be contrarian, I'm calling it here on this podcast. James Anderson is going to have an incredible 2024. I mean, actually, that's not that outrageous a call because we have West Indies and Sri Lanka touring, not two of the strongest <laughs> guys. I reckon those floaty half volleys are going to take a lot of wickets. You know what? He's probably thinking that. He's probably thinking, I can retire at the end of that. That's a good place to retire. I'll take a load of wickets there, get the 700 test wickets, then I'll retire. That's hopefully what he's thinking. Um, maybe he won't go to India. Who knows? Um, just, I, I want to say, worst retirement of all time is Grand Swan, 100%. 100% a retirement that not only was a bit not, was more than rubbish it it sullied for me it put a whole asterisk on his career like I really think it was that bad like just quitting and flying home when you're 2-0 down because your elbow's done well just shut up and sit on the side for three matches don't don't the wheels are coming off that bus don't take two more off yourself just be a good squad player and it, it just displayed for me how selfish character he was to be honest I tell you, Michael, you have um, libelously criticised many uh, a cricketer on this podcast. I think if we strung them all together, you, you wonder why guests stopped coming on about 18 months ago. I think it's... Uh... <laughs> Funny enough, I, I, I had to search something on my laptop for this. And I look at and Dan Norcross comes up. And I'm like, I've got Dan Norcross's number. How good's that? Uh, final, just we've, we've gone for a while. I know you've got a busy day of holidays to do, Rob, and Ash's 2025 planning. Just final thing, can we talk about the keepers? Because I think that's a big, big discussion point that we haven't got to. All Alex Carey will be remembered for is stealing haircuts and um, and doing dodgy things with uh, stumpings. I, re- I find Alex Carey bizarre, by the way, because he's an unbelievably talented one-day batsman, white ball batsman, and he's such a meek batter in tests. I find that really weird. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Bairstow folks, because Rob, you wanted to come in on Bairstow earlier. Yeah, I mean... 
BBC Sport did a whole pick your ashes eleven, and yeah, so the public voted, and it was it was about the right team. The glaring omission was well for me. They everyone at best they was comfortably the wicketkeeper of choice instead of Carey, and you could actually pick both in your team, which I think I did. So I had I Carey as my wicketkeeper and I best I batting and. and Gabe Brooks the elbow because I actually think Bester on on balance probably Bester slightly better. Anyway, but I just thought that was mental because I maintain that, and this is probably just having you. You know, you, you have some views that are different to your parents, and you have others which have just been forced upon you, and you believe as firmly as anything. And one of those for me, without doubt, is that you just pick your best wicketkeeper. My dad grew up in the era of Alan Knott, who was probably England's greatest ever wicketkeeper. Couldn't really bat that well tended to bat nine but was just an amazing wicketkeeper and so he's of that view um, your wicketkeeper catches everything stumps everything that wins your test matches Ben folks should play and Alex Carey is just a much much better wicketkeeper than Johnny Bairstow and so that for me is one of the we we look at selections and things that England you know, played better a lot of the cricket I think you play Wokes earlier you have Folks instead you then have a nice Stokes Wokes Folks middle order that rhymes which is very satisfying as well I think you have a different outcome I'm really pleased for Johnny Bairstow that he had such a great second half of the series I think he's an amazing cricketer he's one of my favourite England cricketers his the whole one day cricket revolution that we had from 2015 through to winning the world cup in 2019 he is absolutely pivotal to that he walks into my best england limited overs team of all time no questions and he's a really and i think he's been a key person in basball and i would not drop him i think he still plays he has to play i i just wish that we'd been a little bit more I basically don't think his better wicketkeeping in the second half of the series negates the impact that the mistakes he made in the first two tests, ultimately, particularly the first test, ultimately had on the outcome of the series. And I don't think he can get away from that. So all the stuff you see, oh, completely vindicated, vindicated his selection. The best of folks argument is over because he took a nice grab, a couple of nice grabs um, in a couple of the tests, one-handed to his right. One particularly good one. That was a really good catch. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I just don't think it negates the wider argument. And I do think as we look ahead and we go to India, folks you still have to, have to play the wicketkeeper. Folks have to play the wicketkeeper. And and that doesn't change for me. And so I'm really pleased. And I don't like the whole, what well, people after piling on Bairstow. So I'm really ranting now. I love Johnny Bairstow. I think he's amazing. And I think there should be a place for, for both players in the team. Um, I know that against that gets hard with Brooke and then Stokes and Boat and Pope and Root, and he's got to kind of try and crowbar it in. I think Johnny Bairstow has to play. I think he's pivotal to like basketball, but folks has to as well. And that's kind of my take on it. And therefore, the best we could keep in the series was Alex Carey because he can actually catch and stump and, you know. Yeah, I just so before we come in, Alex, just I agree with all of that, Rob. I've always been a folks guy and I completely agree that folks has to play. In India, I do think there's a way you can do it. I think Ben Stokes should bat free in India, and that's how you get Bairstow and folks into the same team. I, Ollie Pope still has a lot to do to convince me that he's the person who deserves to bat free, and I've been calling for Stokes bat free for ages, so I was really pleased he got to do it once in his ashes, and he looked good there, as we all knew he would. Um, I also think Bairstow did keep Bairstow in the second half of the series, and uh, he did take a great grab with Mitchell Marsh in that final test, which is a massive moment. Amazing, fair play. 
but he also got away with it a bit sometimes in the second half of the series. Like when he just left that catch off um, Labashain in the first innings off Wood, he just left it when it was right next to him. And Wood and Root had to take a stunning grab one-handed to his left, which he shouldn't have had to do because Besto keeps doing that because he's flat-footed and leather-footed because he broke his leg in two places. Like, And then when he came out, I think it was after the third test, and kind of in a Bairstow style, went against his critics and said all the different reasons why it's so hard for him to keep and why it's such an amazing achievement that he's doing as well as he is, considering no one disagreed with it. No one disagreed with any of what he said, but you shouldn't be getting picked as keeper because you're not fit to keep. That's all everyone's saying, Johnny. No one's blaming you. And that's what's frustrating for everyone, I think. We can all see it. They can see it. I do think there's something slightly weird going on where Bairstow has been promised to play no matter what. But... Rob's already accused me of being libelous on this podcast, so I'm not going to go into the reasons why I think Best is allowed to play for whatever. We'll save that. My parents specifically told me not to tell this story on the podcast, so we'll save that for afterwards. Maybe if we do a Patreon, Rob, we can do it there. <laughs> but anyway, I've, I've said my bit. I'll pass you. I'll pass over to Alex to talk about Alex Carey's lid. Absolutely. No, thank you. I think I think each of your points about Best are really well made. He's done a hell of a job to get back to play where he is. He's obviously done a terrible injury and recuperated really well to get to the, get into the state he's in now. I think technically, even though he took some catches, he, he's, he's still technically quite deficient as a wicketkeeper. And I think the not going for the ball that Root eventually caught one-handed, Root bailed him out because that was a ball that with a decent shimmy across to your right as a wicketkeeper, you would have been able to take probably with both hands at a really good height they're the sorts of things that your keeper should be doing at test level. The one-handed catch that he took where he ended up on his backside in that position suggests that he's lent too far to the leg side to begin with, so he's then had to lurch across back the other way to make up ground that he shouldn't have had to in the first place. So they're the things that make me think that this guy hasn't actually got back to where he was post the broken leg, which is terribly unfortunate, but folks, is better, so he should play. Harry's had a really compact series behind the stumps. Probably Bairstow's Contrast with Carey has has exacerbated each. I think Carey's been really tidy. I don't necessarily think that he's been sensational. You know, he's, he's still dropped one or two. He's by and large been really effective. Don't get me wrong. I think he's had a really good series. But I think he's probably been slightly elevated by comparison. He's got that job. He's the incumbent. And this team in particular is really keen on stability. Probably to a fault. I feel like, for example, David Warner's been shown a little bit too much leeway when if you'd made a change, you could have had a better result. But Kerry's got that job. There's a real reluctance for Australian cricket teams to change their wicketkeeper as well. It's a little bit like opening the batting as well. Is that They'd like to have that position pretty well sewn up for as long as they can, so long as the guy doing it is good enough. And I think Kerry is, so it's going to take a hell of a lot to tip him out. His batting this year has been pretty quiet, Michael. You're right in that he looks technically pretty sound, but he's made some some real errors of judgment. I think chiefly of the first innings at the Oval where he's, he's hit the previous ball for six and then just tried to do it again. Ball was slightly slower and wider and he chips it to short cover instead and that's your game. So I think there is definitely some scope for him to improve there. He averages about 30 in test cricket and I think he, he only needs to be making about 30, but he needs to be doing it regularly enough to elongate those innings, bat with the tail, get your last five wickets to put on 
100 to 150 rather than 50 to 100 and that makes such a such a difference we've seen that every run counts in a really major way in this series and I think there just needs to be a little bit more care with his batting but overall very happy would recommend look forward to him being the wicketkeeper for for the medium term I think we know he's got the talent, right? Like Adelaide Strikers household, this one. My housemate's big into him. So I've seen a fair bit of Alex Carey. And we all know he's got the talent and got the shots. So I would almost say, I, would, I disagree respectfully with you, Alex. Not so much care, but actually back himself a bit more. Because he's got the shots. And he almost needs that like basketball license to just go for it a bit more when he's batting with the tail. And he's just looked a bit spooked to me. Maybe since Stuart Broad firmly took residence in his head. <laughs> After that second test, and also maybe a little bit uncomfortable against the extreme pace of Mark Wood. He looked in the third test, which looked like it rattled him a bit. But I just think, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot more to come. He averages 30, and I think he's sort of batting within himself. So I think he could go on to become a really solid player. And I agree, keeping tidy, not spectacular. Like, he's not an unbelievable keeper. He's like a really solid limited overs keeper, in my opinion. He's then, he's then translating that across to, to tests. Um but yeah, and he's, he, he actually seems like a really nice guy. It's the fun, It's so funny that all that controversy happened to him. He's suddenly he such a normal, quiet guy, and then it's like all of this stuff is suddenly blowing around him. He probably didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, he, he seems a little bit dull, but um, as he said, nice, nice fella. Wish him all the best, really. Um, well, look to bring this to a close. Then there's been a lot of moments in that this Ashes series from the. The Crawley four off the first ball of the the series through to the the bail switching at the end from Broad and and taking a wicket with his last ball in Test cricket. If you had to, what would be the one? You think of previous Ashes series as sort of a, a singular moment, say two thousand and five, the Jones Bowden moment with Harmison and the or Stuart Broad eight for fifteen at Trent Bridge or um, you know. Mitchell Johnson terrifying. It was that one spell in particular in 2013 where he, he really rattled our boys. What will be the one memory you take from this series to to hold on to? Yeah, when you're, when you're grey and old, you're saying, oh, yeah, 2023, that was the series where... I was thinking you were going to name all English moments there as examples, Rob, so it's good you got the Mitchell Johnson one in there. Uh, Alex, do you want to go first? Oh, this is easy. It's not a player. Um, it's Ricky Ponning. He made forty and he's out now. Um, I think is is. <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen a kind of. I I haven't seen a, a a test series operate on this kind of weird culture war footing where Australia have been the have been oddly cast as the conservative traditional observers of the conventions of the game and that if you're playing it at more than four and a half runs and over you're playing it too fast versus baseball which doesn't care for these pre-existing conventions which England actually made but that's okay coming in and crunching it with this devil may care if we make 350 overs well we'll make 600 and 100 overs mentality and the full thrust and parry of all of, of that taking place so quickly, I think has sent everyone involved in it, including those who are watching, and I think a lot about media pundits in this, scrambling for some sort of takeaway straight away, and then it gets immediately flipped because something else is happening. I, I, I don't think I've seen 
a series that's been quite so involved and and unpredictable as to the way it's been played as this one. So I think that has to be it for me. That was wonderful. That was a really funny moment, Ponting. I think it's Ponting to Peterson, which makes it even funnier. And it was about how we got out and threw that test away slightly. Anyway, um, uh, for me, I would go with the broad second, stopping the bails, and then wicket the next ball because it was just it. You couldn't write it. It it was just so funny. It was so funny. Like it was wonderful and joyous from an English cricket fan's perspective, but it was also just hilarious. So that would be my moment. Also, minus Lavashane, um, getting eight from ninety odd, and then walking off saying it's dark, mate. It's dark. It was quite funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, those are mine. Uh, nice. I think I'm going to pick two. Uh, one has to be the the whole birthday stump stumping thing. I think being there as well made that felt very. Uh, a very visceral moment and definitely a test match and uh, an atmosphere at Lords that I, I won't ever forget. But I think if I had to pick one, it's yeah, it's more back to a player. You know, they, they spoke about both of ashes. And for me, this has to always go down as Crawley's ashes. So that's what it will be known for, for me forevermore. The 2023 ashes series, Crawley's ashes. Um, until next time, Michael. Until next time, Alex. Have a good one. <laughs>